Welcome back to The Badge and Beyond, Inside the World of LVMPD. I'm your host, Joe Bartels. Recently, we spoke with our undersheriff, Andrew Walsh, or Andy, by a lot of uh, the way a lot of people know him by. Uh, he has been in law enforcement since the early 90s, a bulk of that here with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Uh, he has a larger-than-life personality. If you have ever had the chance to see him at a commencement or a graduation, you know he knows how to really command attention, work a room, and command a microphone. And by his accent, you can probably tell that he's not originally from Las Vegas, as you'll hear in just a second. But in our conversation, he touched on a specific case where really outside-of-the-box thinking helped catch a killer. So here's more on our conversation with Undersheriff Walsh. Thank you, uh, Undersheriff Andy Walsh, for joining us on this podcast. Maybe describe for a little bit, for people who don't know you, your background. You are a New Yorker. Yeah, you describe uh, describe kind of where you're uh, from. Yeah, so I was uh, born and raised in uh, Staten Island, New York. Uh, if anybody's familiar with Staten Island, uh, I lived on the North Shore of Staten Island. Uh, I was raised by my mom. It was my sister and I uh, that were it was, that was the family. It was me, my mom, and my sister. We were very close with uh, my mother's parents and grandparents, and so I grew up kind of like in that environment. My aunts and uncles were very uh, important to me uh, when I was younger, and then. My mom got married uh, when I was in the third grade, uh, and that was my dad for my entire life after that until uh, he passed away uh, about two years ago now. So, um, but, you know, growing up in Staten Island, you know, it's it's New York, you know, it's a, it's a tough life. It's, a, you know, hard winters, and, you know, we didn't have a lot uh, growing up, and but, we you know, we were happy, and uh, we didn't know what we didn't have, <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, if that makes sense. But, uh, uh, you know, church-going family, uh did all the things we were supposed to do, uh, went to public school. Uh, so I had a New York city public school education all the way through high school. And, uh, yeah, just, it was, you know, uh, it was normal. That's the way life, you know, we've, I watched the struggle, you know, growing up and, uh, and then, you know, uh, became a cop and, uh, you know, I had a variety of jobs uh, before I became a cop though. Uh, I was, I, uh, I was, uh, all through high school, I worked, uh, I baked bagels, <laughs> believe it or not, I worked in a deli of course. In, How, in New York, there's bagel York, shops, yes. uh, you know, so I got a job in the local bagel place and, uh, which was great, you know, cause you always, that's really where my first real experience, uh, with customer service, uh, came into play. You know, if you look back, look at it that way. And then, uh, then I was, uh, I worked as a glazier, uh, I installed windows and storefronts and, uh. Then after that, I went to, I went on to be a salesperson for a window company. I sold the Anderson windows and Marvin windows. And then I decided to take the police test. I took the police test for the NYPD in uh, June or July of 1990, and I got hired in June 30th, 1992. Uh, and the rest is history uh, for, as far as a police career goes. But the, the thing in between is obviously moving to, moving to Las Vegas. Right. That's what I wanted to ask you. So... Became an officer in New York, NYPD, and then how did you go, you know, hundreds, maybe a thousand miles away to Las Vegas? Yeah, so uh, I was uh, uh, working. I worked, uh, they call it graveyard here. Back there, they call it late tours. But I was a late tour cop. I worked nights, you know, and uh, I was there. Uh, it was like four and a half years when uh, Janine uh, graduated the police academy in New York and started working in the my wife started yeah. to see my girlfriend at the time, but she started working in the precinct and, uh, you know, we hit it off. We started dating, which was, uh, you know, interesting cause, uh, you know, I never had dated a cop before. And so we started this relationship and then, uh, soon after we started dating, she had, uh, family that had moved out to Vegas in the 
you know, late 70s, early 80s, made the transition from New York to here. And uh, one of her uncles was turning 50 in September of 97, Uncle Al, who's no longer with us, but Uncle Al was turning 50. And so, you know, it was, hey, we're going to go out and go to Uncle Al's surprise 50th birthday party. So um, came out, spent, you know, uh, stayed with her families. They had this big surprise party for her uncle. And uh, it was at the old Big Dogs on Sahara with the upstairs venue they used to have. I don't even know if it's still there, but... Um, so that's, you know, I got to meet her family and then, uh, you know, all credit goes to uh, a guy named Joe Sino, who's a retired sergeant from Clark County Detention Center, who was like an uncle to my wife. He had moved out here in the late 70s, early 80s, the same as her family. And back then, such a small town, you know, New Yorkers can find each other, you know. Uh, so they, he made friends and became friends with Janine's family. And so my wife's known him since she's a little girl. And uh, anyway, I met Joe when I was out here and he was working in the jail and he asked the best question ever, you know, why do you want to be a cop in New York when you could be a cop out here? Mm. And, uh, before we left, we went down to, uh, there's a, the Metro personnel building used to be on the corner of sixth and Fremont. And now it's called the country club bar or something. And, uh, we went there and filled out job interest cards and there were little green index cards that, you know, name, date of birth, whatever. And uh, I remember dropping them in the box and that was in September of 97. I started the Academy in July of 98. So here we are, uh, 30 years plus later, a storied career, you know, in Metro, maybe a lot of people don't know this, but you start as an officer and you work your way through the ranks here at the police department. So you've risen to the, the rank of under sheriff. You're just underneath the sheriff. You're the sheriff's right hand man. But before that, you were kind of in our different areas. You were in downtown area command for a little bit. You were a captain there. Um, we're talking about a specific case that you were really instrumental in kind of thinking outside the box, you know, maybe describe the situation that we had on our hands and, and kind of describe kind of what happened. Well, we're talking about the case with, uh, where we had two murders. One was Daniel Aldape and the other one was Dave Dunn that the, both those murders occurred in close proximity to each other. Um, I think it's important for anybody that goes back and looks at those cases where we, you know, that investigation and we use the dummy. That's the, that's what everybody says. Hey, you the guy that did the dummy. And, uh, um, you know, I think it's important to look at, you know, we can always look at, you know, how'd you get the idea and where'd you get the dummy from? And, you know, I've told that story a million times, but, you know, in this position today, I think the overarching message that I would have about that case. And, you know, there's a couple of things. One was our philosophy at the time was driven by our undersheriff and, and the, and Sheriff Lombardo was, you know, as an area captain, you take control for the things that are occurring within your area command. So as the area captain, I felt a personal responsibility when I had two murders that occurred across the street from each other, you know, within, you know, practically 30 days uh, apart. And, you know, uh, were they connected? Were they not connected? I mean, it, it was pretty obvious to me. And, you know, we went through a major paradigm shift as an organization where we used patrol to work on murders, right? What can you do as a patrol captain with your resources to help prevent and solve murders? So I, I right away knew that these two were connected. The The method of, you know, the manner of death was the same. And um, so I, I think that was, you know, kind of a big moment from the perspective of being involved. But as an area captain, I took an interest in trying to bring closure to these cases. And, you know, there were other cases that were similar in nature, nothing that required us to deploy, a, a you know, a mannequin or a dummy to, to catch the suspect and, in, 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 you know, a high-profile decoy operation. But, you know, the credit really goes to, you know, uh, there were a few folks over in Homicide, you know, Ryan uh, uh, Yeager and Dan Long were the case agents, and, you know, they, they did 
they they helped organize the chaos that I was creating uh, by doing what I was doing. They managed the DA side of that, and uh, but the cops that worked for me, you know, there was some guys, you know, Brett Whitmarsh and you know uh, Jeff Hughes was my admin lieutenant. I, the list goes on. I'm gonna forget not name somebody, so I'll stop naming names because somebody will be like, "Hey, you didn't mention me," you know. Um, but no, there was just the, the PD detectives at the time that worked for me. You know, it was it was a huge paradigm shift for all of us to say, "Hey, we're gonna do surveillance. We're gonna do this. We're gonna." put to do this operation and after a little bit those guys you know bought into it and and had fun with it you know they started to name we named the dummy we started to dress the dummy up like we had clothes and shoes and a blanket and a sleeping bag and a hat and so it, it really took on uh, uh, a life of its own and then thankfully through that operation we were able to they, those guys by doing what they did, we were able to provide some closure to the families. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to back up, maybe fill in a little bit for our listeners who are following along with this. So this happened in January and February of 2017. This was in fabulous downtown Las Vegas. You were the captain over that area command at the time. And the information that we that we had was very minimal, I think, because you had these two murders that you knew were connected. The the information was very similar. Uh, however, there was kind of this scratching of the head moment of like, how do we, you know, catch this guy? And one of the things that kind of pops into mind, you have two murders already. Did you think that we had a, a potential serial killer on our hands at that at that moment? Yeah, I mean, that, you know, that term serial killer, I mean, you know, I, I didn't really think along those lines. It's just you had two guys that were killed on opposite sides of an intersection 30 days apart, and, you know, both of them were bludgeoned to death, and it was an isolated location. You know, when you have the first one, you say, you know, in your mind, you try to figure out, okay, we have no leads, there's no physical evidence, you know, what could this be? And, you know, when it comes to the homeless population and, and you know, what happens amongst that subculture, you know, the fights and the drinking, and, you know, that was the, the theory behind the first murder, and then the second murder occurred, and, you know, all those theories kind of go out the window. So, yeah, you start to think it's the same person. You're just trying to figure out the connection as to why. And um, and really what it was was it was just a location where homeless people would sleep outside, and that's how, you know, to this day I believe the victim just chose the location. I mean, the suspect just chose the location because that's where these victims would sleep, and that's why we chose to do our operation in the same intersection. And we did some things to get creative. You know, we deployed some cameras, and we had a whole surveillance operation with human beings actually watching the intersection out on the street, and when the arrest was made, you know, we had people right there after the uh, the attempted bludgeoning of the dummy of the mannequin took place. We were there to swoop in and make the arrest. What was that conversation like, or when you, uh, maybe you can set the scene a little bit, when you and maybe other investigators are in a room and they're like, well, how are we going to catch this guy? What are we going to do? How do we identify this guy? And then I guess you were like, Let's let's use this decoy, this mannequin. Yeah, this actually, dummy. it's a little different. Actually, I didn't tell anybody we were going to do it. Um, I, I just told my folks we were doing it. And, uh, you know, Charles Hank was my deputy chief at the time, and he called me up about a week or two into this and said, hey, I heard, did you deploy a dummy? Do you have, like, some operation going on downtown? And yeah. I said, yeah. And he was like, oh, man, you didn't tell me. And I said, well, I've, you know, and the rest is, you know, me kind of defending what it was we were doing. And he, and he said, well, to his credit, he said, well, I'm not going to make you stop doing it. Good good luck. And, you know, it's never good. You know, Charles never told me it was never going to work. Uh, other people did, though. Charles was supportive of it. Uh, but other folks said, you know, you're ruining the case and, you, you know, you're going to cause problems on the back end. And, you know, look, I, I, 
I didn't care. You know, I, I did. You wanted but, to catch this guy. Yeah, I wanted. We could figure that out after we make the murder stop. You know, the idea was to make the make the murder stop, uh, and we did. You know, so it was complex. It was something that we hadn't done, and the beauty of it was, you know, Mark DiGiacomo, who's an accomplished prosecutor, uh, was the he inherited this case, and you know, he he figured out that you know. Because what do you charge a guy that hits a piece of rubber in the head with a ha- with a hammer, um, who won't admit to the murders? And so uh, he did his job. You know, we we pushed people into a, an uncomfortable area where they had to research, and we had to research, and we you know we came up with uh, they came up with it, and I had to be satisfied with that effort. So, um, but the main thing was was we stopped the murders. I guess this is just a curious curiosity question for me. How long? Was the dummy deployed before you actually? It was about a month. Okay. And the funny thing too, if I if we're on, if I could tell a funny sure. story, is we had a rotation of the detectives, right? And uh, so every squad was taken there. So uh, we had one squad that hadn't done the rotation yet. It was their first night, and they, you know, they they bragged about they caught made this happen the first yeah. night they were out there. If we had put them out there sooner, it would have happened sooner because they were so good at what it was they were doing. It was great. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I remember the video. It, this made international headlines, I think, when the video actually came out of this uh, suspect, you know, hitting this this dummy. I remember it's it's kind of iconic. Uh, that- yeah, I had an aunt that lives in, she still lives in London, and it was in the Guardian newspaper. It was all over the news in London. And she called me and said, is this you? You did this? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I, had, I had help. I had a lot of good people working with me at the time. Yeah, so... Fast forward, this uh, suspect's uh, been arrested. You had a chance to maybe speak to one of the the victim's families. Yeah. What did they have to say? It was Daniel Aldape's family was in touch with the DA's office. And uh, when they came to town for the sentencing, the suspect was Shane Schindler. And I think he got 8 to 20 years uh, for attempted murder um, was what he pled out to. Um, you know, we met in our office, my office is the captain downtown and, you know, we, we, uh, they were very grateful, you know, and, and, uh, if there's anything I could say too, especially about the work that our folks in homicide do is, you know, the, the work that they do and the reason our case closure rates are important, uh, for a variety of reasons. But one of those main reasons too, is, uh, in that experience, I learned firsthand how much solving those cases means to a family. And, you know, uh, uh, Daniel's family, they were able to clue me in about his life and tell me, you know, how he got to where he was and how, why he, you know, chose to be homeless and, um, you know, what his life was like growing up. And, you know, I feel bad. We kind of lost touch over the years. They probably think I'm retired by now, but, um, uh, they, they, they were just very grateful. Uh, and, and a telling quote and what, how I would encourage young people, young captains, sergeants, lieutenants, anybody in a leadership position was, especially when it comes to the work we do. The thing I'll never forget is they said, Hey, we just thought the police department here wouldn't care. We just didn't think you guys would care because it's just another homeless guy. And you guys treated my brother's name and his, you know, his death as something that you looked at as important. And it it, it meant a lot to them that we actually cared. And uh, I think that that's why I'll always be a stickler for the casework that we do, whether it's the PD detectives, whether it's the homicide, the robberies, whatever. The, the work that we do means so much to the victims' families, especially in those homicide cases. And that's why... You know, I have an affection for all of our cops, but, you know, when you look at that clearance rate and what we do in these homicide cases, it's really important, uh, 
number one, you take bad people off the street that are capable of killing a human being. There's that benefit that comes with it. But you're also able to help families move on in the recovery process. And prior to this, I, I didn't really think there could be such a thing as closure if your family member was murdered or beat to death or, you know, uh, I, I didn't understand it until I met them. And now I understood what those homicide guys had been teaching me my whole career was how important putting a good case together was because you didn't want to screw it up uh, because you owed that to the victim's families. And I give that credit. Dan Long is a guy over the years that uh, has really taught me that um, aspect of what it is they do. Yeah, we've had the pleasure of speaking to the homicide unit, incredibly dedicated folks who they just want to help bring those answers to light and, and bring those people to justice who are you know responsible for, for killing somebody or taking yeah. someone's loved one away. In that same vein, you kind of talked about putting a, maybe a priority on thinking outside the box, you know, LVMPD is looked at as a leader in many ways, so many different things, the high case rate clearance for homicide, but for maybe other departments or even people within this department, what's your advice for maybe thinking outside the box and bringing things to to the table that may help solve something like that? Yeah, I think we get stuck in our ways, you know, uh, we've, we've, we try the basics, um, we do the basics and sometimes that gets us to where we need to be from a case closure rate. But sometimes, you know, there's, you get, uh, when you, when you hit that block wall, you know, there's, there's, there's no limit to what we can do. Uh, there's technology now, there's, uh, there's, uh, you know, a variety of things that can be done, uh, in police work in general, not just for case closure rates. So, you know, I would just encourage people to you, you go out and, do the things that you think will work uh, that will be effective. And, you know, you have to be mindful of the law and policy and all those things, obviously. <laughs> right, exactly. And, but there are certain things that, you know, are within the bounds of what's uh, acceptable for us to do as a law enforcement agency that uh, are risky. Um, and, you know, I took a chance by doing what I did and, you know, and, and by doing similar things in other cases. And, um, you know, it wasn't in, it wasn't in any playbook. It was a matter of just taking responsibility. So you got to take ownership of it and then take responsibility for when it fails and give credit when it works to the people that actually executed. You, know, you get these crazy ideas. I tell people all the time, bring the crazy ideas to the table. Uh, a lot of smart people work here. We're all, you know, good at what we do to some degree and put the idea on the table and maybe we can fine tune it and turn it to something actionable. But the other thing is, as long as it's all legitimate, you know, what you want to do. Right. I'm not encouraging anybody to break the rules. Uh, but, it's, you know, when you have those good ideas that are just so outlandish that was something we've never done before, um, take a shot. You know, you never know where it's going to where it's going to lead and uh, what it's going to turn into. You have visionary ideas. Uh, talk to your people, fine tune it and then go to work and then ask for, you know, uh, uh ask anybody that's ever had some success like that. The one thing they didn't do was try to convince everybody it was a good idea. Um, they just went and did it and it works out. Uh, sometimes it doesn't, you got to take ownership of it, but, um, yeah, I think just do something different. You know, uh, that's the thing that's, you know, kind of troubling looking ahead, you know, is what does the future look like for law enforcement in general as a profession is, you know, we do the same old things over and over and over again. And, uh, you know, I'm encouraged by what I see when people do something dramatically different, even if it doesn't work, you know. Yeah, you never know what what it could lead to in, in the case that you, you know, deployed a dummy and it, it caught a killer. So, yeah. uh, Andrew Walsh, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate uh, your time on this uh, podcast. And um, again, thank you very much for your time. I love you guys. Thank you. Thanks. 
you can really hear it in his voice. He really appreciates all the men and women who work for this department. And I could listen to Under Sheriff Walsh talk all day. He has stories about back in the day and throughout his entire career. So it's really great to, to hear from him. So we appreciate him and uh, his inspiring conversation. Hearing him and his dedication, it just really puts everything into perspective of just how much he cares about the people of this community and the men and women for, of this agency. So to our listeners, Thank you for tuning in week after week. We really appreciate the support. We have more content coming for you. We promise. Uh, Thank you for sharing some time with us. And thank you for listening.